You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of John, the Gospel of John, specifically John chapter 20. And if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those in the seats in front of you and turn to page 907. And if you've been with us at Ascend for any stretch of time, you know that this is a departure from where we've been studying on a regular basis. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and it seems like this is odd because we were in the Advent season and looking at different aspects of Christ's first and second coming. And then last week, we returned to the Gospel of Mark, and now we're leaving him again. But we're doing so because I think it is important to be acknowledging something that as a senior pastor, I've noticed over the last few weeks. You know, from time to time, guests will come to Ascend and they will experience a service or they'll look online and see our doctrinal statement and they'll ask questions. Maybe there's a a topic that they are passionate about. Maybe there's a topic that might appear controversial, and they'll want to know, where does Ascend land on these topics? Now, usually what they're wanting to know is a very simple and concise answer. What they're wanting to know is maybe a verse or two that defends our position, but it's difficult to provide that in an email. It's difficult to provide that even in a coffee or a lunch. And the best way to do that is to be able to unpack it from Scripture. And so one of the topics that I've been asked most about over the last few weeks is, what is Ascend's Church's position on the Holy Spirit? And so what I want to do this morning is to be able to answer that by walking through Scripture. And in doing so, what I hope to do is model for all of us as Christians how we should approach answering questions like this. There are plenty of topics out there from Scripture that are hot topics. Plenty of topics that are controversial, plenty of topics that we get passionate about, things like maybe predestination, Topics like women and their role in leadership in the church. Topics like when will the Lord return and what are the details surrounding that return. And so, of course, this message is not going to go into all of that, but I believe that if you'll stick with me, I will provide a framework as we unpack the teaching of the Holy Spirit that will serve us well with all of these other topics. In the third century, a man by the name of Sibelius was evaluating the Trinity, and he came up with a conclusion that God was one God, but would present himself in three different modes. And so God would sometimes show up as Father, God would sometimes show up as Son, and he would sometimes show up as Holy Spirit. This is referred to as modalism. It was something denounced as heresy by early councils of the church. Another man by the name of Arius was trying to explain the Trinity, and he said that God the Father created the Son, who then in turn created the Holy Spirit. This was called Arianism, and it was denounced as heresy in one of the early councils. The Holy Spirit was most mostly a settled issue as church history moved forward until we came to the 19th and 20th centuries. 
In the 19th and 20th centuries, it was not specifically one man, but it was a couple terms that began to gain traction when it came to the Holy Spirit. Those terms were the Charismatics and Pentecostalism. And those terms essentially summarize a movement in the 19th and 20th centuries that centered around topics such as the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the speaking of tongues, of prophetic words, and miracles, specifically in the area of healing. And so what I intend to do this morning is unpack what Ascend Church teaches about the Holy Spirit by walking through Scripture to equip us all to remember that as Christians, we are the temple of the living God. Now, now we use that a lot in a number of different ways. We talk about how we need to go on a diet because after all, we are the temple of the living God. We use that phrase when it comes to New Year's resolutions about working out because after all, we are the temple of the living God. But that that phrase that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 3 is actually tying together Genesis to Revelation, showing a theme that God intends for his people. And the Holy Spirit is the one who currently plays that role. So we're going to unpack some questions. I'm going to give you actually all four outline points right now. The first one is we will ask the question, who is the Holy Spirit? We will then ask the question, how did he work before? That's why I have you at John chapter 20, verse 22. Then we will ask the question, how does he work after? And then finally, we will ask the question, how should this impact us? So let's first of all look at the question, who is the Holy Spirit? Now, we might be tempted to answer this question by going into the back of some of your Bibles that has what is called a concordance. A concordance is a group of verses that all will point to one particular tomb. So if you, tomb, term, if you want to look up the tomb, it will give you all of the verses that have tomb in them. And so you will be able to go throughout scripture and see what the Bible says about that. We might also be tempted to want to look at John 20 and verse 22 and see what does it refer to as the Holy Spirit and be the beginning of our answer. But the best way to be able to answer these questions is to be able to understand what the entire Bible says about the topic and how it fits in it. So let me show you by John chapter 20 and verse 22 why there is a before and after aspect to the outline points. John chapter 20, verse 22, it says, And when he had said this, he, Jesus, breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, as I study scripture, I think this is a turning point for how the Holy Spirit interacts with humanity and God's people. It is at this point where there is a before and then there will be an after. But I will unpack that as I go through Scripture to unpack our teaching on the Holy Spirit. Now, go with me on this. But the best way we can begin to understand the Holy Spirit is to begin to understand how do we interpret the Bible. What is this book that I hold under my arm that hopefully all of you brought into this room that we are going to be marching through? What is this book? 
And and I'll attempt to answer that by hopefully sharing something from pop culture that most of us can relate to. You remember the first time you saw the movie Star Wars, A New Hope? Now, Now the reason why I share that is because there is a scene in that movie where Ben Kenobi, the old man in the desert, is talking to the young man named Luke Skywalker, and he's explaining some details. Luke is asking a lot of questions. And Ben begins to let him know that there were some clone wars, that there were Jedi Knights. He says, in fact, there was a Jedi by the name of Darth Vader, a pupil of mine, before he turned to evil. He hunted down, betrayed, and destroyed the Jedi. Now at this point, Ben reveals to Luke that he knew Luke's father, which causes Luke to have a fury of questions. You, you knew my father? What are the Jedi Knights? What were the Clone Wars? Now for the young people in this audience, they will say this is easy. Your father was, close your ears if you haven't seen this, your father was Anakin, the Jedi Knights. We, we've seen a whole movie about the Jedi Knights, the Clone Wars. In fact, there was a, a whole movie called The Clone Wars. We, we know all the details. But for those of us who saw it for the first time in the 70s and 80s, we walked away and we said, wait, wait, what? What are the Clone Wars? What are Jedi Knights? Who is Luke's father? I want to know. And what this informs us about Scripture is that every passage, every story is a scene in a bigger story. It's to be understood for the value of the scene, but also not at the expense of the story. In fact, let me say it this way. The first step that we should take when we're reading Scripture is to understand the details of the scene. It is valuable for us to understand that. In that Star Wars analogy, there were reasons why Ben didn't tell Luke everything. There were reasons why Ben approached it the way that he did. There were reasons why Luke asked the questions that he did. And so we first must understand the scene for the value that the scene provides. But we never draw conclusions about that scene that contradict the big story. So in other words, I cannot make up my own conclusion on what the Jedis are. I cannot make up my own conclusion and say, well, I think Ben Kenobi was Luke's father. Because that contradicts the entire story. And beloved, I think what people often do with Scripture is they become experts on the scene, but it contradicts the big story. And so when it comes to the Holy Spirit, what many people do is they camp out in Acts. Because if you're going to look at a place in Scripture where the Holy Spirit is most active and where he's most referred to, it would be the book of Acts. But that is a scene, beloved. It is a scene in the bigger story. And so the conclusions that we draw from Acts must not contradict the entire story. So the question then must be asked... Who is the Holy Spirit? We can write down Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. We're introduced to the Holy Spirit right from the beginning. In Genesis 1 and verse 2, 
We see the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Holy Spirit was active in the creation of the universe. In fact, I would encourage you to write that down. That is the foundation to understand who the Holy Spirit is. He is foundationally active in the creation of the universe. But listen to this. He's also foundationally active in our regeneration. You can write down Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19. Jesus said that we are to make disciples by go and by baptizing them and by teaching them to observe all that he has commanded. And he says we are to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In doing so, Jesus is reminding those disciples and us that the Holy Spirit is equal with God. That everything the Father is, everything the Son is, everything also is the Holy Spirit. We also see in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit often is swapped with the names. You can write down Acts chapter 5, and ver- ver- ch- chapter 5 verse 3 and chapter 5 verse 4. With Ananias. Peter asked Ananias, did you sell your land for such and such? And he said, yes, I did. And he said, why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? And then in verse 4, he says, "You, since you have lied to God. In so doing, he's making the Holy Spirit equal to God. And then you can write down Mark chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. The Holy Spirit is the distinct person. When Jesus was baptized, you have Jesus being physically present in the river. You have the voice coming from heaven, which was the Father. And then you have the Spirit descending like a dove. There are three different persons, co-equal, active in regeneration, active in creation. So at a very high level, this is the answer to the question, this is who the Holy Spirit is. But then the second question we must ask is, how did he work before. How did he work before? The fact is, is that Jesus says in John chapter 3, before Pentecost, before John 20, that the Holy Spirit is involved in the regeneration of sinners. The only way someone can be born again is if the Holy Spirit regenerates them. This was before Pentecost before John chapter 20. And so we can conclude from that, that in all of scripture, all the way back to the beginning, all the way through Genesis, all the way through Israel, the Holy Spirit was involved in regenerating people. After all, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says it's impossible for sinners to contribute anything to the gospel. After all, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins and not to be too morbid, but have you ever been to a funeral where the body in the casket can choose to get up? There's a reason why that analogy is given because it explains to us who we spiritually are. It explains to us how impossible it is for us on our own to be able to do anything as it pertains to the gospel. We need someone from the outside enabling us and that is the Holy Spirit. In fact, chapter 
2 and verse 4 of Ephesians says, but God made us alive, verse 5. And then as I said, Jesus teaching Nicodemus about the gospel in John 3 verses 5 through 8 says that it is the Holy Spirit who regenerates. Now where the fulcrum switches from the after or before to the after can be found by going back to John. John chapter 14. In fact, John chapter 13, would you look at that please? John chapter 13, Jesus is explaining to the disciples that he is about to go away. He says in verse 31, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. What Jesus is saying there is that there's a process that has begun that cannot be stopped. That process is that Jesus is going to be glorified. That process would include his betrayal. It would include his crucifixion. It would include his resurrection, pronouncing victory over the grave. It would actually change the physical makeup of his body. If you go back to John chapter 7, you also can see Jesus advancing this. It says in John chapter 7, verse 39, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet, what? Glorified. This is a concept that John and Jesus are unpacking to communicate to the disciples and to us that there is a difference between the Holy Spirit before and the Holy Spirit after. In fact, back in John chapter 14, we can see this again. Jesus says in verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit was necessary because Jesus was leaving. The message that Jesus had been teaching would continue to need to be reinforced. The, the power that Jesus was displaying would need to be present as the church was born. It was important that Jesus' presence would be able to be experienced by all believers. Look at John 14, verse 17. Jesus says, Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him. Look at this, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. There is a very distinct difference there. Beloved, the Holy Spirit has always been present from the beginning of creation, but the difference is he has always been with believers, with the people of God, but at the fulcrum, he now comes in us. So let's further understand what the with you looked like before. You can write down Joshua in Numbers chapter 27, verse 18. 
The Spirit came upon him. This qualified him to be the leader of the nation of Israel. In the book of Judges, we see so many judges where the Spirit came upon them, which equipped them to be able to be the judge of Israel. We see that with Othniel. We see that with Gideon. We see that with Jephthah. We see that with Samson. Then take a man by the name of Saul. A man that, even though his physical stature was impressive, his, his aptitude was not. His personality was not. And it says in 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 6 that the Spirit will rush upon you, Saul. You will prophesy and this will turn you into another man. Then there was the young shepherd David who in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 13 was said that the Spirit rushed upon him from that day forward, equipping him to be the king of Israel, equipping him to be a man that he was not previous to that. We often also see in the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit could come upon someone and could also depart. You can write down 1 Samuel chapter 16 verse 14. The Spirit departed from Saul. So throughout the whole Old Testament, we see the Holy Spirit being with his people, coming upon people for a temporary time, helping them become something that they had not been before, equipping them to do something that God had called them to do. This was how the Holy Spirit acted before. But we get glimpses that there will be an after. You can write down, and if you want to turn there, you can go to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2 is a glimpse into the future. This Holy Spirit who had been with the Jews in the wilderness during the day as a cloud, during the night as a pillar of fire. It says in Joel chapter 2 verse 28, it shall come to pass afterward, interesting, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. So Joel is saying there will be a day when it's not just the prophets. It's not just the kings. It's not just individuals for specific roles. There will be an indiscriminatory pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And what he's saying here is that the Spirit will be poured out on men and women, slaves and free, Jews and Gentiles. What does that sound like? Galatians 3.28. In Christ there are neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. We see glimpses of this, that there will be an afterward. That's what takes us to John 7. As John is reflecting on the time he had with Jesus, as John is reflecting on the, the teaching of Jesus, as John is reflecting on those scenes that he had been given, and now how they connect to all of Scripture, he begins to unpack it for his original audience. Now when you see John 7, verse 39, you begin to say, oh, okay, I start to see. Again, Jesus said, had when Jesus said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, 
The Spirit had not been yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now we're beginning to see what is the fulcrum between the before and the after. Then we get to John 14, verse 17, and we begin to see that he dwells with you, and then he will be in you, that there's a fulcrum, there's a before, and there's an after. This is a key transition. The Holy Spirit has always been with his people, but after this fulcrum occurs, he will be in his people. Which brings us to the third question. How does the Holy Spirit work after? How does the Holy Spirit work after? John 14, verse 16, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. That word is capitalized in most of your English Bibles. It's because this is a name that we can refer to the Holy Spirit as. It is the Greek term paraclete. It means to come alongside of someone, to be an aid or a helper for someone. That means and it implies that there is need that we have to be assisted. And that assistant is the Holy Spirit. In fact, different English translations translate that paraclete word this way, the New International Version, counselor. The new international version, contemporary, current translation, advocate. The Darby Bible translates this comforter. We are promised that this helper will be with us forever. Look at verse 16 and 17. Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. See, the Holy Spirit is still active in regeneration and he's active in our sanctification, our growing us into the image of Christ. When, when will this happen? When will this transition happen? Well, John 7, verse 39 says, when he is glorified. John 13, 31, Jesus says, now am I glorified. So, so when, do, when does the thing shift? When does there become the after? Well, look at John 20, verse 22. I read it at the beginning, but maybe it'll make a little bit more sense how it fits. Jesus in the locked room where the disciples were huddled for fear enters into the room. That's not possible for you and I to do. If these doors were locked in the auditorium, that would keep us in here. But it did not keep Jesus outside. He went right through and he showed up in their presence. At this point in John 20, verse 22, Jesus in verse 22 breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now there's different convictions on whether or not this was the point at which everyone who believed after this received the Holy Spirit indwelling or if it was Pentecost. There are a lot of different great Positions and explanations why, but my position is I think this is the fulcrum. 
I think Jesus has been glorified in that he died. He rose again. His body now has been transformed. I think that this is the point when he says to the disciples, receive the Holy Spirit. From this point forward, anyone who is converted would receive the Holy Spirit indwelling them. I'm leaning heavily in my conclusion on the book, The Indwelling Presence by James Hamilton. It's in our library. You're welcome to check it out. It has helped me take the Holy Spirit from being a lot of different verses that I knew about and be able to connect them together and see how redemptive history reveals the purpose of the Holy Spirit. So it brings us to the questions that we must ask that I introduced at the beginning. What do we do with terms like baptism of the Holy Spirit? What do we do with when it says in Acts that the Holy Spirit filled individuals? What do, we, what do we do when the Bible says, especially in Acts, that they were full of the Holy Spirit or they had the fullness of the Holy Spirit? Well, very briefly, I'm going to unpack this for us. Let's first of all look at the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a specific phrase for a specific event. There are two times when the baptism of the Holy Spirit is given that simply refer back to the baptism of John the Baptist and his interaction with Jesus. But when we see the baptism of the Holy Spirit being specific and a specific event where immediately following there are miraculous signs, there were four times this happened, and I would encourage you to write this down. Acts chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. This is at Pentecost, where the Jews were present from all nations. There were three festivals that Jewish males were required to return to Jerusalem, Pentecost being one of them. And so this was a, a crucial moment when Jews from all kinds of different nations were present in Jerusalem, and at this point, the preaching occurs, and there is a baptism of the Holy Spirit. There are miraculous signs associated with that. The second time this term is used, specifically resulting in signs and wonders, is found a little later on in Acts chapter 8, verse 16. This is the Samaritans. Remember, Samaritans were, for lack of a better term, crossbred Jews. These were the people that were sent by the Assyrians to the northern tribes of Israel after the Jews had been taken away. And when the Jews came back, they married those, those people, and the, the offspring were called the Samaritans. And so when the gospel is preached in Acts chapter 8 with the Samaritans, there is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit referred to as a baptism of the Holy Spirit resulting in signs and wonders. Then, Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through 45, we see a Gentile by the name of Cornelius, who was a centurion. He was converted it says that the people in his family were baptized and signs and wonders resulted. The final occurrence of this phrase, baptism of the Holy Spirit, occurs in Acts chapter 19 and verse 6, where John's disciples received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and it resulted in signs and wonders. 
Now, now why is this important? Because what's interesting in the book of Acts is that there are over 15 conversion accounts. None of the conversion accounts are referred to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What is referred to as the the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the enabling of signs and wonders. Now, why is that important? Well, you can write down Acts chapter 1. In verse 8, Jesus says to the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you to do what? To be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Jews, all Judea and Samaria, crossbreeds, and to the ends of the earth, Gentiles. So do you see how that verse and the outline that is given actually coincides to those terms, baptism of the Holy Spirit, the events, and the signs and wonders? And the reason for that is, imagine, if you will, that someone came in and grabbed the microphone and said to all of us, guess what? God has told me that we need to go back to sacrificing animals. We need to go back to dietary restrictions in the Old Testament. And that unless you follow these, you are not saved. How would we know that person was speaking truth? Well, now we would say we would go to Scripture. But back then, they didn't have all of Scripture completed. And so when the apostles would go to the synagogues and they would say, no, 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 it's about Christ It's not about the Mosaic Law. It's not about Torah. It's not about the ceremonies and restrictions. You can understand how the Jews would say, wait a minute, how do we know? But if these men and the people who were converted are speaking in tongues, if the people who were converted are being healed, if there are signs and wonders, then the Jews and the people would have said, oh, this is different. I see this as authentic. And so the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts served the purpose of authenticating the message and the messenger as the gospel was growing the church. What we see outside of Acts is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit refers specifically and exclusively to our conversion. That when we are converted, we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and he comes into us fully. We don't need more Holy Spirit. We're going to sing a song at the end of the service that you're probably familiar. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come fill this place and flood the atmosphere. Well, guess what? He's here in fullness. When we are converted, we don't need more of the Holy Spirit. We have him. We have everything that we need, 2 Peter 1.3 says, for life and godliness. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, as the entire scripture is unpacked, in the book of Acts with specific events resulting in signs and wonders to authenticate the message and the messenger. But now that we have the completed word of God, it is simply what happens when we are converted. The second term that is found in the book of Acts is the filling of the Holy Spirit. The filling of the Holy Spirit. The apostles prayed for a filling of the Holy Spirit. 
Let me give you some verses. You can write these down and look at them later. Acts chapter 2 and verse 4. Acts chapter 4, verses 8 and 31. Acts chapter 9, verse 17. Acts chapter 13, verses 9 through 11. This filling was reserved for temporary bursts of the Spirit's power. We don't need this today. This is something that the apostles and the the believers in the transition period when they didn't have all of the New Testament written. In fact, as far as we know, other than perhaps the epistle of James, none of the New Testament had been written during the time of Acts. And so because of that, they did not have what we are able to draw from to be able to authenticate messages and messengers. And so the disciples would pray for fillings of the Holy Spirit that would enable them to have temporary bursts to do things that they normally were not able to do. But then there's a third term, and that is the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We see this in Acts chapter 7, verse 59. We see this in Acts chapter 7, verse 60. We see this in Acts chapter 13, verse 52. The fullness of the Holy Spirit, beloved, is a life characterized by the believer with the indwelling presence of God. The fullness of the Holy Spirit is a believer with a life that is characterized by the indwelling presence of God. So we look for fullness in our lives, ensuring that there are not other things that are overruling the Holy Spirit. We are ensuring that we are pursuing spiritual disciplines to make sure that the communication between the Holy Spirit and us is unbroken. To make sure that there is no static in the line. What's interesting about these verses that I just mentioned to you, Acts 7.59, Acts 7, verse 60, Acts 13, verse 52, is that the, the believers and what they did could only be explained as the Holy Spirit was full It was in them. He was moving them. Beloved, remember the first message of 2022 by Nathan Scroggins reminding us about unconditional forgiveness. The only way that can happen is when we are full of the Holy Spirit and it is overflowing and doing things through us that we can never do on our own. That's the fullness of the Holy Spirit. This is a gift. It completes Christ's work. It is affirmed uniquely in these four outpourings, the baptism. It characterizes the true believer in the fullness. But here's the challenge with all of this. People will come to me and say, Jeff, have the, have the signs ceased? Do people speak in tongues today? Can miracles occur? And when I, when I respond to that and say, as best as I can tell, the purpose for why that happened in the New Testament does not exist today. As best as we can tell, God does not gift people with the same giftedness as he did in that transitional period of the New Testament. People will say, well, then you don't believe in miracles. You don't believe in the Holy Spirit. You don't acknowledge or account for the Holy Spirit. And I hope you can see as I have unpacked this that I do and we do. And do miracles happen? Well, part of the problem with that question is our definition of miracles. 
Some might say the Chiefs beating the Bills today would be a miracle. There were fans yesterday that said of at least two teams, it was a miracle. Others said it was a curse. But I say that jokingly to, 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 to make the observation that I think sometimes we throw around miracle in ways that the Bible does not define it. A, a miracle is a supernatural event where God intervenes in the rules that he has designed for this universe, bends those rules for his will and by his will and for his glory. Can that happen today? Yes, emphatically, yes. But what's fascinating is when you look at the entire Bible and you see the miracles of the prophets, you see the miracles in Acts and in the New Testament, the miracles of Jesus, even as we've studied in the Gospel of Mark, there was always purpose, wasn't there? And the common denominator with all of those purposes was not a person's need. It was authenticating the message and the messenger. That is crucial. And so if today we are calling the miracles that we uh, have experience with, the miracles that happened in the, in the Bible, because we went to some arena and somebody slapped somebody's head and they fell back, that's not what the Bible says the purpose of the miracles were. And so if you are going to say today that these miracles happen, because listen, there are plenty of people who have amazing experiences, and I'm not arguing whether or not those experiences happen. What I am wanting you to do is evaluate, did they happen as they did in the Bible with the same purpose and with the same objective? And if the answer to that is yes, then great. But I'm just telling you, when I have evaluated the experiences that people have shared with me, And they have wanted me to see that this should be normative. This should be what normally happens in our world today. And then I compare that with the word of God and the purpose that we see in miracles and how this Holy Spirit topic is unpacked from Genesis to Revelation. I just don't see that the same purposes and the same experiences are happening today. But that does not mean I do not believe in the Holy Spirit. Absolutely I do. I depended on the Holy Spirit before I walked up those stairs to preach. I'm depending on the Holy Spirit as I stand down and I ask the Holy Spirit to to show me where I need to be changed through this message. Beloved, I fully believe in the Holy Spirit. I'm fully interacting with him. I fully acknowledge that there are miracles But I hope that what we have done this morning, I know a lot of verses and I know we've gone a lot of different places. I hope we've been able to build a Jenga tower of our understanding of the Holy Spirit. What would I use with that analogy? If you're familiar with that game, it's the game where you pull one little block out at a time. What you're hoping is that the whole tower doesn't fall. And friend, when we construct a theology and an understanding of a topic and a concept that goes from Genesis to Revelation, if one block is pulled out, our Jenga Jenga tower will stand. So, So what do we do with this? This brings us to the last question. How should this impact us? Well, here's what I hope. Here's how I hope it will impact us. I hope it will impact us to first of all see that there was a before how the Holy Spirit functioned. That God himself dwelled with his people. That he was active in creation. He was active in regeneration. But it was with his people, not in indwelling presence for all of his people. 
I hope you'll also walk away from here being reminded of the fact that the transition was Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ. That it was his work, his glorification through his death and his resurrection that became the fulcrum that the teeter-totter of before turned to after. And then after, beloved, it is the reality that God is in his people. That's awesome. He is in you. God's presence is in you. He's not a cloud. He's not a fire. He's not a tabernacle. He's not a temple. He's in you. That's why Paul says, you are the temple of the living God. And his spirit dwells in you. What a privilege. What a benefit. What a responsibility. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? But friend, the most important question that you must answer is this. Is he in you? The answer to that being yes is not dependent on religion. It's not dependent upon a ceremony. It's not dependent on the scales in heaven of good works versus bad works tipping in your favor. The only way the answer can be yes is if you've surrendered to Christ. It is his completed work on the cross, his completed work through the empty tomb that enables you to be able to answer yes to the question that his spirit dwells in you. But friend, you must turn from your sin. You must surrender your life to Jesus as the Lord of your life. Have you done that? If you have not, friend, would you do that this morning? When you do that, the Holy Spirit baptizes you. You then have a new nature. You now can have conviction over sin. You now have a teacher that guides you, a paraclete that helps you, that counsels you, that comforts you. And you are brought into the body of Christ, his church. You can call out to him at your seats right now and be converted and receive the Holy Spirit. There will also be prayer team members at the ends of the stage that as we stand and sing, we'd love for you to be able to talk to them and ask questions. But friends, some of us can be so focused on the experience of the Holy Spirit that our our understanding of him is not informed by scripture. Maybe some of you have realized that today. That's, That's okay, just recalibrate and make sure that your understanding of the Holy Spirit is rooted in his word. But others of you have seen the extremes of people who who, who talk about the Holy Spirit, and you, you've unfortunately held the Holy Spirit at, at arm's length. You don't really think about him. You don't recognize your dependence upon him. And so, friend, maybe this is your opportunity to recalibrate and be informed by Scripture, but to be changed. Would you take a moment right now and invite the Holy Spirit to do his work of paraclete, to do his work, to move in your mind and your heart because his primary purpose, beloved, is to exalt Christ and he will conform you into the image of Christ as you listen to him, as you are led by him.